Good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, as many of you know, last week my family was on quarantine because of uh, COVID exposure. We've gotten the all clear and I'm delighted to be able to look at you and not be preaching from this screen behind me. Uh, it's really good to be in the room with all of you this morning. We're continuing in a series that we're calling Never, Never Too Far preaching through the genealogy of Jesus, which in many ways served as the resume for someone in, a, in the ancient world. And we've been looking at, at this genealogy of Jesus and saying there's some things that are really unexpected about it, particularly the inclusion of the women that mark Jesus's genealogy. And, and as we survey these particular women that are included as being a part of Jesus's heritage, part of his family tree, we see that each one is is demonstrating to us ways that it's impossible for anyone to be too far from the grace and the presence and the kindness of God. And so we talked about our messy family past and looking at Tamar. We talked about our messy sinful past and looking at Rahab last week. And this week we're gonna survey the third woman, third woman in Jesus's genealogy, whose name is Ruth. And in looking at Ruth's story, we're not talking about a messy past or a messy family. We're talking about scorched earth sadness. Like those moments where it feels like, ah, that this much sadness being present circumstantially in our world, in your world, in, in a person's story, it leaves us wondering, are we just too far from God's presence? God's presence feels so distant in moments where there's intense sadness and suffering. Because sometimes it's not something our family did. It's not something we have done. It just is. It's, it's living in a broken world. It's dealing with the heartache and the longing. And into that space, we're going to explore and we're going to, to labor to understand what does a redemptive story look like there? We love redemptive stories around here. I hope you picked up on that. We exist to embody and declare God's redemptive story and we love to see the grand redemptive story of God playing out in people's individual stories. And by, by redemptive story, what we mean is a turnaround, a rescue. Redemption is rescue from evil or sin. It's winning back. It's that story that has the biggest twist where when, you, when the credits roll, you go, I didn't know it was gonna turn out like this like redemptive stories. We love those. And Ruth's story is one that takes shape in the midst of scorch earth sadness. But it's a redemptive story, a beautiful one that we learn from as we pay attention to what does it look like for God to redeem the sad, the broken. By, by scorched earth, what we're talking about is that that's actually a military term that has lots of usage throughout history. You might think of of the march of Sherman to the sea in the Civil War. The idea of scorched earth is not, not only a battle against the opposing forces, but it's a decimation of all the assets that would allow the opposing forces to rebuild and fight back. And the idea is that in some stories, in some moments, we feel like all the assets have been decimated. Like, I don't know if I have anything left to rebuild and to fight back. And quite frankly, this is Ruth's story. And as we dig in to Ruth's story, what we're going to learn is this. Barren refugees, like those that are far from home, that are sojourners, 
refugees that feel like they, they, they're empty, barren refugees who cling to unseen mercies because that's what mercies sometimes are, unseen. But barren refugees who cling to unseen mercies will experience unexpected, surprising redemption. This is what we learned from Ruth's story. We're gonna see how it makes, makes sense of our own stories as we continue to find our placement in God's grand story. So let's see if we can make sense of that statement together uh, as we dig into Ruth's story. What do we mean, what do I mean when I say barren refugees, barren sojourners? Ruth's story starts in a low moment. Did you hear it as Derek read those verses for us? And the first few verses right off the bat, we realize that this is a scorched earth scenario. Look back with me because it says this, in the days when the judges ruled, This is giving us some context for our story. And if you've got your Bible open, what you can see is on the page just before Ruth is a book that carries the title Judges. We've just read, if you're reading your Bible straight through and you get to verse one of Ruth, you're like, oh, I get that because I just read 21 chapters of that. And as I read all 21 chapters, I felt like I was spiraling further and further down, further and further away from God's presence because the story of the judges, the season of the judges was a season of time where the people were coming undone. The final verse of the book of the judges, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this book starts, Ruth's book starts by saying, let me situate you. It's a dark time. In the, in the days when the judges ruled. And then it says there was a famine in the land. So generally a dark time, specifically a very dark time. There was a famine in the land. And it was so intense we learned that a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. Apparently the famine was so bad that this man had to leave his hometown as a refugee, an impoverished refugee wondering, can I provide for my family? We're gonna have to go to Moab to see if I can scratch out an existence. Do you feel it? So far, it's nothing that this family has done. It's nothing that any individual has done. It just is. It's the brokenness of the moment that they find themselves in. And then it goes from bad to worse because in verse three it says, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Chilion died so that the women, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Can you feel it by verse five? Darkness, famine, death, death, death. And then by the time you get to the end of the chapter, when Naomi arrives back in Bethlehem, the whole town is stirred up and she actually says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi means pleasant. She says, that's not my name. My name is Mara and Mara means bitter. Chapter one has established the context in which Ruth's story unfolds. Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law and Ruth's story unfolds in desperation, in darkness, We've just been introduced to three huddled, impoverished widows that are going, how are we going to make it? They're realizing that life in this world is often harsh, challenging. Uh, It has been said that every great story unfolds in four chapters. 
your favorite movie, your favorite book, if you were to go back and to think about it, what you would find is that every great story generally unfolds in four chapters. Home, home lost, home longed for, home restored. That by the time the credits roll, oftentimes the hero is in some ways back where they started, but they're totally transformed for having gone on the journey. That the journey is about losing home, longing for it, and then having it restored. Chapter one of Ruth's story is setting up, like all great stories, the, the mechanisms of great story by showing us home has been lost. There is homesickness. There's longing for things to be restored. And the truth is that as we come into the season of Advent, as we've been marching through the season of Advent together, where we are preparing our hearts for the coming king by looking back at the time he came first. We're, we're looking back at the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem so that we with anticipation and joy as the people of God can await his coming again. That if we are going to enter into a season of anticipation, what, we have to be honest with homesickness. Like we have to be honest with home lost. Because can we all just be honest for a moment? We're not home and we know it. Like we can feel it in our bones. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And we won't understand the story, the chapters of the story, the development of the story, unless we can be honest about this chapter, this chapter of home lost, of homesickness, of things are not the way they're supposed to be. Where do you feel homesick? Like where do you know it's the case that you survey the landscape and you deal with the weight of it all? The interesting thing is that Naomi knows God's involved in her story. Did you hear it in verse 20 and 21? She has confidence that God is involved. But when the details of your story are really ugly and painful, that is confusing and chaotic. She says in verse 20, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. And then she says, he's testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So she has confidence that God's not a distant God. God's not a God that's not involved. He is involved. And as we, as the community of God, affirm that together, that we serve a God who is involved in the stuff of life, we then have to deal with, but some of the stuff of life is painful. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the homesickness and the pain? Where do you feel it in your bones? It could be any number of things. You know, living in this community, I know one place where some friends have dealt with it is fertility realities. Longing to be a parent or finding out that you're going to be a parent and you weren't planning on it. And oftentimes those two couples being friends with one another all of a sudden that can create a great sense of like, hey, this doesn't feel like it's the way it's supposed to be. That those who weren't looking for a child or didn't, didn't think they wanted one, all of a sudden have one coming and this couple's been longing for years and all of a sudden they're going, this just feels like a broken system. I know God's involved, but it feels chaotic. I go, what do we do with that? Or coming out of 2020, it, it, it may be the realities of, of just mental health depression and anxiety and loneliness. I know there's so many in our community and all across this city that relationships stripped away and the intensity of this season, it just feels a bit like scorched earth, like the assets of my existence have been decimated. And, and the scary part is that some days nobody can understand me because I can't understand myself. It's like things have gotten sideways internally. And in that moment, we can say, ooh, I feel the homesickness in my bones. This is not the way it's supposed to be. 
Or, and, and if we're honest, this might be the scariest of all. Some of us are like, everything is ideal, really. My story's panned out the way I hoped it would. I've got everything I could imagine. I've got this friendship, these roommates, this spouse. I've got this job. And from the outside looking in, I always thought that when I got to this point, everything would finally feel good and right. But it doesn't totally. Like I have this nagging sense of discontent. Can we be honest that we all know we're not home? No matter where we fall on the spectrum, no matter what our story is, there's homesickness because we have lost home. We are barren sojourners in one way or another. And here is Ruth and Naomi and Orpah trying to make sense of the chapter that they're in. Home has been lost. They are barren sojourners. And the question is, what do we do in the face of that? What do we do? And we'll see in this text that there's a diverging path in the scorched earth. There are two choices. And we'll see them represented by Ruth and Orpah. Look back with me, verses 8 through 18. It's the middle portion that we haven't yet read in Ruth chapter 1. And let's see how, how Orpah and Ruth respond to the scorched earth. It says, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go and return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. In essence, she says, may the Lord give you home, right? Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices. They lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, no, we won't return with you. No, we will, pardon me, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husband's? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear you sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her and she said so Ruth said or pardon me Naomi said to Ruth see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods return after your sister-in-law but Ruth said do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for wherever you go I will go and where you lodge I will lodge your people shall be my people your God my God where you die I will die and there will I be buried May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. You see, they've been, they've been introduced to the scorched earth of home lost and there are two responses. And interestingly, there's kind of a, a play on words in the Hebrew here. Orpah, option one in the scorched earth, she orpahs. Orpah Orpah's, because Orpah's name means gazelle, the one who runs. And when Orpah is confronted with Naomi saying, hey, I don't know what this story holds. It is, it's dark. The earth is scorched. What are you going to do? I think you need to go home. And Orpah goes, you know what? I think you're right. And she kisses her mother-in-law and it says she goes back to her people and to her gods. When we are confronted with the sadness and the longing and the heart, the homesickness of our story. Option one is to return. It's to run. 
We do this in any number of ways. This might be trying to numb the pain, trying to accumulate and amass more stuff. We think if I can just make the pain go away and I can generate happiness, if I can create my own redemptive story, I can be okay in the midst of all this. It kind of reminds me of working out with a friend a couple of years ago. I, I tweaked my back. I'm not what I once was. And I was trying to keep up in this workout with a friend. And all of a sudden, my lower back was not feeling so hot. And I was like, ooh, I don't know. I don't know if I can keep going. I'm not even sure I, I can bend over at this point. And he said, oh, no, I got you covered. I got what you need. And he grabs this little tube of gel and he puts some in his hand and he pulls up my shirt and he goes, let me just put this on your lower back. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. And then immediately, I was like, oh, wow. Like, not only do I not have pain, I'm not sure I still have a back. Like, everything is just, there is no feeling. And then after he has slathered this stuff all over me, he shows it to me. He goes, yeah, yeah, this is not approved for humans. And I was like, excuse me? He says, this is liniment gel. It's for racehorses. That when they have muscle pain, you rub this on a racehorse and they're okay. He said, it's powerful stuff. And I was like, yeah. Uh, and so I felt like I could do anything. You know, I'm like, wow, look at what you've done. I think I just did something illegal, but I feel great. And the danger in that moment is that the intense numbing of that pain led me to think I could do some things that if I had actually been listening to my body, if I'd been aware of what was going on, I would have known like, I don't need to be lifting that weight. I don't need to be doing this thing. And when you numb the pain and you press forward trying to be the hero of your own story, you wake up the next day feeling like you can't walk. You know what I mean? Like when homesickness sets in and you say something like, I just need a drink. I need a little more stuff. I need to generate a little more. And we, we numb and we accumulate, but when the pain sets back in, it's far worse than it ever was previously. You follow me? That, that option one is this sense of, I can numb it, I can grit it, I can do it, I can make this story what it needs to be. And Orpah the gazelle goes running. But then option two, Ruth. Ruth, Ruths. Ruth means the friend, the faithful one. And the word in this text was that she clung to Naomi. The word is debak in Hebrew. It is the word for covenant faithfulness throughout the Old Testament. It means I'm gonna cling to you. And the statement of clinging is your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. And nothing will separate us except death itself. What Ruth says is, I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to cling to your God, which incidentally, if we can just be honest for a moment, makes no sense at this point in the story. Naomi's saying, my God has dealt with me, but look at what he's done. It's very bitter. I'm empty. It has been calamitous. And Ruth says, count me in. I'll take him as my God. She clings in the midst of scorched earth and it makes no sense. She has seen something, whether it, were, it was in her husband, in the marriage to her late husband, seeing her father-in-law and mother-in-law, she has come to see something of the character of the covenantal God that even in scorched earth, she clings to him and says, I'm not going anywhere. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But she has confidence that there's something beyond these storm clouds. Years ago, I, I flew to Chicago on a flight. I was by myself and, and uh, we were, it was a day that looked kind of like this. It was stormy, kind of intense. And we were preparing and, and 
the pilot decided, hey, we're doing this on time. The weather's not slowing us down. And we taxied and we took off. And I pride myself on like, I've, I've traveled quite a bit. I think I've, I'm, I'm going to be calm here. I'm watching other people get a little nervous. But then the storm gets more and more intense. And the plane starts to do this. And my stomach is jumping. I start sweating, sort of feeling pretty sick. I grabbed my sick bag. Never done this before. But I was, I was in like locked and loaded position, like, oh, I don't know. <sighs> we drop again and the storm is getting darker and raging. And I thought, I, this is going to be so embarrassing. I'm going to be the guy folding up my doggy bag in the back of my seat because I can't, I can't. And in the back, I was like cursing the pilot under my breath. Like, this guy needs to have his pilot license revoked because he's flying directly into the storm. What is he thinking? It's getting more and more intense and we're bouncing and my stomach is going. My st- and I was going, oh, what is happening? Darker and darker. And then all of a sudden, no lie. It was, it was such a moment because all of a sudden we broke through the clouds and it was still. And do you know what? The sun was shining. It was calm and the sun was shining. And I immediately was like, oh. I felt well and I was like, man, this pilot... He knows what he's doing (laughs) right through the storm, you know? Never doubted him for a moment. Uh, Ruth was clinging. She was clinging to the hope that the sun is shining on the other side of the storm clouds. Like that's covenantal clinging. In the midst of homesickness, we, we experience home, home lost, and then there's this home longed for, where we start to say, it's true, I feel the homesickness in my bones, but I don't think that's how this story ends. I think home awaits me. I think there's sun on the other side of the clouds, and I am going to cling. You see, the invitation of Ruth's story, as we start to see it unfold, is to recognize, yes, in fact, you are a barren refugee in one way or another. But a barren refugee in the midst of scorched earth clings to unseen mercies. That's the invitation. And we see Ruth do it. I I won't read the whole of the book for you. I want you to spend some time doing that if you get a chance later today or this week. But I do want to preach the whole book to you. And chapters two and three and the start of four, the story continues to unfold beautifully. Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, Ruth gets to work trying to provide for her mother-in-law. She begins to glean because the law in Israel allows for impoverished people to pluck grain from other people's fields so that they don't go hungry. And she, she is impoverished and so she starts to glean and she finds her way onto a man's property named Boaz. And as it turns out, Boaz is a worthy man, a wealthy and a worthy man who owns land and is in fact a goel, redeemer, a redeemer, it means that he is related to Ruth's late husband. And he is in a position as it relates to the law in Israel to actually buy out the land of her husband and his father and to take her into his home and to have a child with her so that their family line could continue. Boaz is one of the ones that is able to do that if he's willing. But as the story unfolds, Ruth and Boaz become acquainted and Naomi encourages Ruth to go seek out Boaz and she does and she actually invites him to become her redeemer. 
And now this is a very costly endeavor for anyone because it means that you have to purchase the land and then you father a child and then all of that goes to this other family line. It's actually like a division of your own inheritance and your own wealth. It's a great cost to yourself. Boaz says there's actually someone else in the system that could be the Goel, could be the Redeemer. And so there's this whole scene where Boaz and this other relative are out at the city gates and they're determining who is going to step in to redeem this story. And the word Goel is the thematic word of Ruth. It's used 22 times as it relates to Boaz and this guy in chapter three and chapter four. And they're having this discussion back and forth and finally Boaz steps in where the other relative is unwilling to engage in this costly work. Boaz says, at great cost to myself, I will redeem these impoverished widows that are longing for home. And he covers Ruth with his garment, it says, with his wings. He's showing her the kindness of God and he takes her into his home. And I want us to pick up the story as the community begins to celebrate what's happening between Boaz and Ruth. It's in chapter four and verse 11, as we get to see the final chapter, as we get to see surprising redemption, home restored. Look with me at chapter four, picking up in verse 11, it says this. Then all the people who were at the gate where this discussion about the Goel had been taking place, they were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses and may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah whom we've already met if you've been around with us. They're saying, may there be blessings like that household because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in all Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. This is a story that has come full circle. This is a redemptive story. It started in a distant land, impoverished, longing for food, empty, calamitous, and now they're in Bethlehem. Incidentally, another play on words. In Hebrew, it means the house of bread. The story that started in famine in a distant land, empty and brokenhearted, is now whole. It's a family. The house is full of love and connection and they're living in the house of bread with the worthy redeemer that is tending to them. This is the story of Ruth's redemption. But did you hear the biggest twist? Did you hear it? There's part of us that we've been so locked in, if you're studying the book of Ruth, to this is a story of how God would redeem a particular broken-hearted widow. And he did so by the generosity and kindness of Boaz. And the term redeemer has been used in regards to Boaz 22 times. But do you know that the word redeemer is 23 times in Ruth? And we just read its 23rd usage. Look back with me. I want you to hear the biggest twist because this isn't just about their particular redemptive story. This is about the redemptive story. Look, it says in verse 14, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. That's the 23rd usage. The first 22 have been about Boaz and the other redeemer. But now 
it says, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given what? Birth to him. Now, if I'm Boaz, and I just leveraged all of my wealth and all of my platform in this city to take this woman into my household, great generosity to make sure that she's cared for, and all the ladies of the city gather together, and the baby is born, and they're rejoicing. They're going, you have a redeemer. Boaz, I'm thinking, it's probably standing there like, yeah, that's right, she's got a redeemer. And then they go, and you have given birth to him. And Boaz goes, excuse me? Like the whole book has been about 22 times. I'm the redeemer. And they go, no, it's the baby laying in Naomi's lap. That's the redeemer. You go, excuse me? And then when you read verses 16 to 22, you see that God's aim has always been grand redemption, even as he is working in a particular story of sadness. Because it says this, Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David, who by the way is kind of a big deal. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Did I mention that David's a part of the story? Do you feel what the author is doing, mentioning David twice? What was the last verse of the book of Judges? You see, Ruth's darkness is not the fullness of the darkness. The last verse in the book of Judges was there's no king in the land and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so God roots down into a particular story and says, I'm gonna bring redemption to Ruth. But as I do, listen, it's not just about Ruth. I've come to redeem this nation. The last verse of Judges is there is no king. The last verse of Ruth is David. God's answer to the pain and the heartache and the homesickness of his people is a king that's going to rule rightly. And we should have been primed and ready, right? Like the people should have been primed and ready when darkness swamped the land in a different season a thousand years later. They should have known we need to look in the midst of darkness when the people are wondering where is home going to come from? Where is restoration gonna come from? They should have known to look to the house of bread. Look to an unlikely mama. Look to a little baby. You see, in Bethlehem, another baby was born and laid in a lap, and they said, the Redeemer has come. And Jesus came, he came so beautifully, not just to fulfill the little story, but the grand story. He was the ultimate Redeemer. He was a barren refugee, was he not? And living at great distance from home. He knew homesickness because he had lived for eternity in heaven, but he was willing to journey far from home into a distant land to be barren and impoverished. And in that place, he clung to hidden mercies. Like when everybody left him and denied him, and when he had done all that was required for righteousness sake, he was pinned to a tree, and as he was bleeding and dying, all of his followers leaving him, the very face of God turned away, and the sun went dark, the storm clouds gathered, and even still he clung to unseen mercies. My God, my God. He was calling out faithfully to God, even in his pain, trusting his soul to him. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. He knew that on the other side of the dark clouds, the sun was still shining, and three days later, unexpected, beautiful redemption as death broke open. 
You see, he came to rescue us. And listen, this is the great joy for where we find our chapter in the story. We're still not home. There's still barrenness. We're still sojourners. But we don't cling to unseen mercies. We don't. Like the beauty, we have a privileged position over Ruth. Ruth clung when there was no reason. There was nothing that she could fully point to and say there's reason to cling in this moment. But we, we point to a bloodied tree and an empty tomb and we say he came and he's coming again. We're not home, but one day we're going. Oh, it's good news. For those who have placed their trust in the completed work of Jesus, we're gonna go home. And so my invitation to you barren sojourners is cling not to the unseen mercies, but to the seen completed mercies of Jesus Christ, knowing that we're gonna experience beautiful unexpected redemption. Amen. You pray for us. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that we have hope, a hope that does not disappoint because we know the baby, the redeemer from Bethlehem. We have seen him, we have seen his life, we have seen his death, we have seen his resurrection. And Jesus, we now know that you are seated, the son of David, the true king on the throne. And so we have hope, we have confidence that even behind the storm clouds of the moment we find ourselves in, that the sun is still shining. And so I pray that Seven Mile Road, that the men and women of this community, that we would be found faithful. That we, like Ruth, would cling. That we would cling to your mercies knowing that redemption is coming. We thank you and pray that you give us hearts in this Advent season that long for our homecoming. We look forward to seeing you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.